You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to another episode of Simulcast. I'm Victoria Brazel and today we're going to be talking about safety. Simulation rather prides itself as being one of the strategies that we use to improve patient safety. But what we're going to be talking about today is the fact that simulation itself carries risks. And I'm joined today by Anne Mullen, who has done something about this. And she's going to share some thoughts about what the problem is and maybe what some of the solutions are. How are you, Anne? Just fine, Vic. Thanks so much for the the chance to talk to about this with you. So... Anne is the Simulation Centre Program Manager at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Massachusetts. She's also one of the facilitators at the Centre for Medical Simulation in Boston and a nurse by clinical background. So she knows her stuff in this field. Um, Anne, why don't you kick us off? Why did you get interested in this? Uh, Was there some particular event or events or was it just a growing concern? Well... It was a number of things, but since I've started working in simulation, um, I've been cautious and trying to make sure that what we're doing is going to be helping people and avoiding having problems occur. When I plan my simulations, I try to be as careful as I can, and I try to use good planning to make sure that things go smoothly. A few years ago, 2014, Dan Raymer wrote a editorial in the SSIH journal addressing just this issue. Um, And I became more attuned to that. Dan and I spoke about it and we talked a little bit about what we might do to um, ward off some or prevent some of these problems that may happen in simulation. One of the things that really prompted us to form the foundation for healthcare simulation safety was the IV fluid incident that happened in New York. Happened in January of 2015 was that about 40 patients in New York in an outpatient clinic received simulated IV fluids, essentially unsterile water in the place of normal saline. This was reported in the FDA and about uh, 40 patients received the IV fluids and two of them actually became quite ill and according to the FDA report, one patient died, although it's not exactly clear that that patient's death was attributed to the normal saline infusion, the simulated IV infusion, but it's very likely that it was. This patient became quite ill and septic after receiving an IV infusion of simulated fluid. Okay, so this was fluid that was intended to go to the simulation center instead got actually administered to real patients. Correct. When I heard about this, it was six months on the heels of the editorial that Dan wrote. And after having read Dan's editorial and thinking about safety and simulation and then hearing that this event had happened, I actually felt responsible, even though I wasn't necessarily even present. I don't wasn't even in the same location that this happened. But as a simulation person, as a simulation educator, I felt I should take action. Yeah, and I think this is uh, really important, I guess, as we would in a clinical practice, is to take responsibility for things, look at the systems, things that might be behind it, instead of saying, whose fault was that? Uh, Rather think, as a simulation community, we've got some responsibility. Exactly right. We started talking about what might be done, and we talked with a lot of our simulation colleagues, and we found that lots of different people were doing many things, all seemingly effective things or well-intentioned things, but the thing that we noticed was that 
everyone was doing something slightly different. We didn't have a unified approach to be able to respond to the risks in the environment. We talked about labels. Everyone seemed to be using different types of labels. Um, and even the manufacturers who produce these simulated supplies, various manufacturers have various strategies for labeling their items. Some label them with misspellings or with unusual spellings as to alert the user that this is not really epinephrine, but it's something that's a simulated epinephrine. Others put labels on to say not for use by patients, or they also say things like for education use only or for simulation use only. And these are even the commercial manufacturers of those things. In my experience, the vast majority of so-called fake medications are actually put together in-house and all kinds of things are done either labelling or not labelling at all. So um, I guess that's just the tip of the iceberg, even what the manufacturers do. Correct. And each person has a slightly different view. It seems there's lots of different views about how this should best be done. Some people think that we need to make things look exactly real so that people will learn better. Other people say, well, we should make it look very different so that people know that this is not real. Yeah, and I think uh, it really just comes down to something we've talked about a lot on Simulcast, which is what are we trying to achieve? Is is the aim of the simulation about recognising and increasing familiarity with medications? Or is the aim of the simulation something completely different, in which case maybe the physical resemblance of the drugs is less important? So I think I'll just uh, jump in here as well, because when I knew I was going to be talking to you, I had a bit of a look around at what else other people had written. And the book that we reviewed on Simulcast a couple of months ago, Healthcare Simulation Education by Deborah Nestel and her colleagues, has got a chapter in it called Strategies for Managing Adverse Events in Healthcare Simulations by Stu Marshall and Kate McIntosh. And uh, it's interesting, they certainly talk about exactly what you've spoken about, but also put it in a framework of talking about learning-related adverse events, so just not learning anything or not transferring learning, the physical adverse events. And here we were talking about uh, also adverse events to participants in the simulation, so electrical devices, defibrillators, sharps, all those sorts of things, psychological adverse events, uh, because, you know, we know it's quite can be a traumatizing experience. And then the category of things that, um, you know, brings with it another range of risk, which is in situ simulation. So, and again, looking at the website you've developed might be a nice segue. You've actually also identified a range of events across quite a, a range of different sorts of risks. Talk us through that. So as we started talking with some of our simulation colleagues, we just found many different stories about things that that have happened. And the more stories we hear, the more I'm struck by saying you can never imagine what a human being will do. So some examples of that are people using medications that are intended for training 
and having them end up in their pockets or ending up back into the simulated environment because they look real. Another example of that is doing a training, having decided that only live, in-date, effective medications were going to be used in order to in order to avoid having those meds end up getting back to a patient. So in other words, they decided they were only going to use real medications in the simulation. Yet at the end of the simulation, someone was helping to clean up and refilled those real medications that had been used with water, thinking this was how we were doing it. So even though these decisions had been made that the real medications were going to be used, someone in the process didn't understand that that was the case. You're listening to Simulcast. Yeah, and I just think there's so many similarities here with our clinical adverse events, and that is that, you know, you just have to expect that human error will occur, that people will do perverse things, and so we've got to have a range of system interventions to do that. And as you're talking, Anne, I'm starting to think, you know, this is really support for the idea of having policies and procedures in our simulation programs, I guess them being a criteria for accreditation, as well as some of the practical things that uh, you offer on the website, like labelling. Tell us more about what do you think the answer is. We think that labeling is part of the answer. It's one small part of it. We propose a standardized label that would be serving a couple of purposes. One purpose of having a standardized label would be to label the things that we're using in simulation so that they don't end up in the clinical environment. These labels are on our website as a downloadable template so that no matter where you are in the world, you could print them out onto standard label stock and print your own. We also are selling them on the website only at cost just to try to get them out to the world. The ones that we are selling on the website are waterproof laminated labels. Yeah, so this is, I'm just looking at your website here and so for our listeners, I'll put the link on our show notes but uh, the, it's called healthcaresimulationsafety.org and all the things we've been talking about so far are in there, some details of incidents and links and a series of these labels that uh, Anne's been talking about. So this sounds pretty good for those sort of drugs and equipment type things uh, that we're saying. I guess one of the other things that we were talking about, Anne, was coming back to the policies, procedures and maybe even reporting systems for this kind of thing. To that end, we came up with a list of what we consider to be best practices. We called it the Simulation Safety Pledge. And it really starts with when you're planning a simulation educational event, starting at the beginning and thinking about, is this as safe as it possibly could be? Are there things that I could do to make it safer? And to not avoid doing any of those things for the sake of expediency or convenience. SSH accreditation processes, I imagine, also include some aspects of safety? Yes. Um, we've talked to um, Janice Palaganis, who's on that accreditation um, committee, and she was very interested in bringing this to the accreditation group and having it become a part of the uh, accreditation standards. Uh, so as they go out to do their site visits for the accreditation, they're asking questions about healthcare simulation safety and uh, what the labeling practices are, what the policies are, and trying to align those with, uh, you know, best practices in, in safety. Yeah. Yes, it's another way, I guess, through accreditation processes of sharing best practices. Simulcast. 
And it just occurs to me that one of the barriers might be that the simulation community does tend to be early adopters. They tend to be people who've had to take risks to get their program going. Do you think, strangely enough, it's almost countercultural for some of us to be looking into this attention to detail and worrying about this stuff that uh, is going to cause risk, but maybe we haven't spent the time thinking about? I think that's true. Early on, when we first started talking to people about this, the initial um, response was not as brisk as we had hoped. There were a lot of, um, you know, I think there were a, there was a sense that this was not such a, a dangerous profession that we're in, and it's uh, the risks were not as great as as we were as we were worried about. When I first started looking at healthcare simulation safety and risks involved in simulation, houses involved in simulation, I started to look around to see what had been written about this. And if you sort of did a search on healthcare simulation safety, you could find just thousands of, of hits related to um, people feel that if they do simulation, they're more confident or that they feel that they're going to be safer practitioners or uh, you know how how good healthcare simulation is at making us safer practitioners. There was very little in the way of risks involved in simulation. Yeah, and I'm I'm not too surprised because I did a similar search myself and basically came up with uh, Stu's chapter and uh, your article and not a whole lot else. Although there is a little bit of a reading list at the end of his chapter as well as there are some references on your website. Simulcast. So one of the other things that I wanted to mention was how we're trying to get our word out using social media. So even though I'm a rather a novice at this, we have been, you know, the website is in the early stages of development. We're trying to make that be more uh, well-developed. We've also used Twitter and Instagram. And what we're asking people to do would be if they are interested in sharing their pictures with us about how they're or their stories with us about how they are promoting simulation safety hashtag keep sim safe that is the instagram account that's associated with our work and we're posting pictures of you know our simulated iv fluid rack for example with the labels on it with the hashtag keep sim safe so I guess finally I wanted to sort of ask you the question about sort of where to from here and what do you think our responsibility is a simulation community? How could we create, for instance, an international uh, adverse event reporting system or, or should we be just making this rolled into the uh, reporting systems at either our educational institutions or health service institutions? What do you think? I, I would love it if we could have a central place to report these as a simulation community. We would like our website to be part of that process. What we, our website, our website, I would have to say is in the very early stages of being built. We're, we do have a place on the website for people to share their, their stories with us, to share their incidents and their strategies for managing risk in their environments. As we collect those, we are placing them on the website anonymously so that other people can learn from them. It seems like what we're hearing from our simulation colleagues is we need to go to the next step and have it be a more organized and 
systematic way of collecting that information. So to have some sort of a database approach where medication um, events get reported together or that you use some sort of a systematic reporting system so that you can see trends and share those trends with our simulation community. If there are actual events that happen, of course those should always be reported through your hospital reporting system so that they can be looked at by the, the people that manage those sorts of things in the hospital. Well, I think, and for me, doing this has been quite a eye-opener, and, and I suppose it's made me go back and think how much do we need to formalize some of our risk management strategies within our simulation program. It's made me realize probably there's a broader set of risks than I might have appreciated before. And I guess for our listeners, I'd be keen for them just to take that moment and reflect on where those things are and if there's extra gaps that we could uh, prevent errors before they happen. Uh, did you have any sort of final thoughts about things that you would uh, like for take-home messages for our simulation community? I guess one of the things that I've really learned along the way has been that every simulation educator that I have spoken to has a story. And if we start sharing our stories with one another, then we will be safer because the things that we hear from one another will build that shared knowledge so that we can be more aware of the hazards that, in our, that are in our simulation work. Yeah, fantastic. And I think if we're not role modeling that kind of culture towards our simulation safety, we can hardly expect our participants to be doing that in their approach to clinical safety. Well, Anne, it's been a pleasure. We'll look forward to uh, seeing how the website develops and the initiatives around the world. And uh, again, I'll put those notes on the blog post accompanying this podcast for our Simulcast listeners. But thanks again for your time. Connect with us at sim underscore podcast on Twitter and Instagram.